Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. So much fun. I could talk to you guys forever. It's just so much fun to use Clapper Vision to explain how your body works, how it gets injured, how I can protect you from surgery and help it heal. And if it doesn't, then I'll operate on it. You do it right. Measure twice, cut once, just like my dad, the carpenter, taught me. And you're good to go. You get to get your life back again. But you do have to make sure whoever you're going to is an artist, is a sculptor. Measures twice and cuts once. Otherwise, not so good. If it sounds too good to be true, take this pill, take this shot, and you're going to be young again. Forget about it. Get away from those folks. Put the work in. Ride a stationary bike. Walk in the pool. Swim. That's how you fight father time. Yeah, none of us are going to live forever. But eating right, staying fit, you enjoy your life. Just like Jimmy V says, make sure you laugh. I'm not so sure I have to cry every day like he says. But I do need to laugh. I love those Rodney Dangerfield one-liners. I was married once. My credit card was stolen. I never reported it because the guy was spending less than my wife was. That's right. I had to manipulate words to just make you chuckle. That's what you got to do. Because life is hard. And we have to climb mountains in life. Because we have dreams. And at 8.15, I can't wait to talk to Tyler Andrews, who's an expert in climbing physically a mountain. And the questions and the story that he'll tell us, I can't wait to talk to him. But it made me think all week about how much I love the world of arts, sports, and surgery. The metaphor of what Tyler Andrews is going to talk about. Because the mountains that he climbs are the mountains that each of us have to climb. Metaphorically. Dreams. And I started to think, where in my lifetime... In the arts was the greatest discussion of mountain climbing. Where was the connection of dreams and climbing a mountain? And it was from The Sound of Music, this song. Climb every mountain, search high and low, follow every byway. You know, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream. 
Find your dream. Mountains and dreams. I looked it up. And guess what I saw in the world of music, where that connection came place? Tito Jackson talking about forming the Jackson 5. Here's the beginning of that interview. He uses the word mountains and he uses the word dreams. What was it like going from a poor black kid in Indiana? And the reason why I mentioned the race is because during that time there was a lot of racism, you know, especially in that area, to suddenly getting a record deal with Motown and having four charting singles, one after the other, like the transition from this poor life, you know, crammed into, I think, a three-room a three room house into suddenly being superstars like this. Here's his answer. And it'll involve mountains and dreams. Dreams of coming to Southern California and getting the hell out of Gary, Indiana. Nine kids in a three-room house. Well, I tell you, in Indiana, we dreamed a lot. You know, we wanted to be stars. We, I remember we used to look at the cloud formation out of our back bedroom window and imagine that those were mountains and we're in California and things like that. That's what it meant to him, getting that dream in place. He looked at clouds and imagined they were mountains. The Jackson 5 started because of Tito Jackson using the dad's guitar, Joe Jackson's guitar, who he said, don't you touch that guitar. But Climb Every Mountain was a song that Michael Jackson, as a kid, fell in love with. That's the connection in the world of art and music and that song, Climb Every Mountain, to the Jackson 5. Here's the details. He knew we loved that guitar, and so he used to say before he went to work, he put it away in the closet in the case and tell us, sit us on the couch and point his finger, don't you touch my guitar when I'm at work. You know, so of course, you know, children, that means you can touch my guitar while I'm at work. That's what I heard, you know. So I was playing this guitar for many, many, many months, and my mother would let me play it. She knew I wasn't supposed to play it, but she thought I was making progress. Until one day he broke a string. One day I broke the string, and I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know how to change the string. I didn't know what string I broke or whatever. Couldn't even buy one. He came home, saw the string broke, and was really upset about it, man. He, he uh, took care of my ass, and then he sat me down and put the guitar in my lap and said, show me what you know. What a picture he's painting of sitting, crying with that guitar. All right, son, I told you not to play it. You did, you broke the string. Now show me what you can do. So here I am playing this guitar and crying. You know, I'm about like seven, eight years old. And uh, 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 he looked at me and said, dang, you're playing just as good as me. So he gave it to me. He gave me the guitar right there on the spot and uh, bought himself another guitar, a better one, of course. But I still have that original guitar. Wow. Yeah, so I, he said, he gave me the guitar. He said, I want you to learn every song on the radio. So that's what I started doing, and I was learning songs by the Isley Brothers, Temptations, Ford, whatever. And what he doesn't realize is his little brother, Michael Jackson, is watching this, dreaming of also bringing music into his life. Here's where Climb Every Mountain comes into the Jackson 5 story. 
Then Jack, uh, Jackie and Jermaine and then we were harmonizing and Michael and Marlon were just little bitty things, you know, they were somewhere around two, three, four years old playing with little cars, you know what little boys do and we'd kick them out the room and that whole thing. Then one day, uh, like a year or two later, we hear Michael singing a, a little thing in kindergarten, singing Climb Every Mountain in, in, the, in the school uh, a performance and uh, he tore it up, man. He tore it up. We couldn't believe our mouths flew open. Couldn't believe that was our brother up there singing. We rush him home, tell him he's in the group. Mom said, me too? Say, yeah, you too, come on. So that's how the Jackson brothers were formed. We did a wedding and the lady said to us, what is your name? And we said, well, we really don't have a name. We're going by Jackson brothers because we're brothers. She said, no, 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 you should use Jackson 5 because there's five of you and, and it's stuck. So we called ourselves to Jackson 5. And the rest is history. But it starts with that song, Climb Every Mountain. But they're inspired by mountains to make their dream come true. A man who inspired the whole idea of physically climbing a mountain is a man, Edmund Hillary, the first to climb in 1953, Mount Everest. He's the first guy knighted by Queen Elizabeth once she becomes Queen of England in 1953. That's the first thing she does, is knight him for doing it. The physicality of climbing Mount Everest, the largest mountain in the world, is one thing. But just like the Jacksonville, just like all of us, that mountain to climb is not just the physicality. There's the mental aspect of it, the creativity to be clever. You got to figure stuff out to climb a mountain in your life and in my life as well. You got to hear the man speak, Edmund Hill himself, about what mountain climbing is really like. One of the effects of, of high altitude is it's a little bit like having a dose of influenza almost being at, at high altitude. The, a lot of your energy and a lot of your drive tends to be sapped. And people feel uh, fit and able to cope with altitude at different times, even during uh, a single, you know, the few months of an expedition. So obviously you've got to get people who are well acclimatized, who have the drive and the enthusiasm at the right time in order to sort of throw them towards the summit and say, go to it. Fitness is one thing. He keeps talking about drive and enthusiasm, Edmund Hillary, because without that, you ain't getting up that mountain. And it, it is conceivable, though in actual fact, I mean, Tenzing and I were fit throughout the expedition. It would be conceivable that at the start of an expedition, there might be uh, a couple of people who, who would have been more suited to the summit than later on. But there was, I don't think there was much doubt. At the latter stage of the expedition, we were very fit and we were very strong. So we were selected by the expedition leader, who was John Hunt, as the people to put in the final shove. But still, you had to be clever. All of us have to be clever, because when that door closes in front of you, you can't just bang into that door. You'll get further along if you figure out if there's a side door to enter the door that was slammed in your face. We reached the, um, the south summit of Everest, which is 28,700 feet. And then we looked along the summit ridge, which is quite an impressive 
narrow ridge, it's corniced on one side, which is overhanging with snow and ice, so you can't keep on the, the crest of the ridge. Uh, we had to keep down on the steep left-hand side on snow and ice. But halfway along the ridge, there's a rock step. It's yes. about 40 feet high. And that's the part that keeps you from getting to the summit, that kept all the men before Edmund Hillary from getting to the summit. He gets there and he says, I got to figure out how to get past this step, get over it. And I cut steps along the, the side of the ridge until uh, we reached the, the bottom of the rock step. And looking up at the rock step at 29,000 feet, it really did look extremely difficult to overcome. But then I noticed that out to the right of the rock step, where the ice was plastered onto the wall, there was a crack, I don't know, maybe two feet wide, but just large enough to crawl inside where the ice was breaking away from the rock. And he figured out at that moment, I'm going to wedge myself in here and not walk away like everybody else had done before him. And I sort of crawled inside that, and then I wriggled and jammed my way um, up the crack with rock on one side and ice on the other, and finally pulled myself out uh, onto the top of the rock step. And that was really the first moment during the whole of the expedition that I was confident that we were going to get to the top. The Hillary step. But overcoming that rock step, which we knew existed, we'd seen it from far below, uh, made me feel the confidence uh, that we were going to succeed. And sure enough, on we went and uh, we ultimately reached the top. Funnily enough, that step is now called the Hillary Step. And uh, any climber who uh, climbs Everest uh, from that south side at some stage has to go up the Hillary Step. Let's listen to a climber who followed literally in the footsteps of Edmund Hillary. Tell us exactly what, he has the drive, but it takes its toll on you to get up these mountains, and particularly Mount Everest. Michael Groom, this is from 60 Minutes in Australia. Michael Groom has seen more Himalayan summits than any other Australian. This is footage from one of his 17 previous expeditions. The intended route takes a diagonal break from right to left up to the summit ridge and then we follow the summit ridge up to the summit. But whether we'd actually do it or not, we'll have to wait and see. The former Brisbane plumber is drawn to these mountains. But frostbite has already cost him all ten toes and much of both feet. Can you imagine? He's got no toes and half his foot are gone and both feet. But he knows how to get up that Hillary step all right. And this is me on the summit at two o'clock in the afternoon. So you really do know that you're standing on the top of the world? Oh, definitely, because it's, it's not much bigger than a, a dining room table or, or a bathtub itself. Um, so there's not much room actually to stand. It uh, drops off in all directions, off all sides. Why would you want to do this, Mike, Michael Groom? But uh, this black mark here represents the frostbite that I received um, in the last few days. Good heavens, Michael, I mean, is it really worth it? Well, you'd have to think, looking at it, that it's, it's not, but um, we all realise the risks involved, and you accept those risks, or you don't play the game. What about when you get close 
and you get to that Hillary step and you can't wedge yourself like everybody else, then you got to walk away. You could see the top. It's right there, 300 meters away, and you got to turn back. That's what happened to this man. Dr. John Teske, a Brisbane anaesthetist and former SAS commando, was one of those who paid to climb with Michael Groom. But 300 metres short of the summit, he calculated he had neither the oxygen nor the energy to safely go on. So close. Almost within my grasp. Uh, extremely. At the time I felt uh, very depressed and, and uh, disappointed, but certain that the, that the decision was correct. It was a decision that probably saved your life. In retrospect, yes. Saved his life. What's it like up there? How bad can it get weather-wise? On earlier climbs, Michael Groom has experienced extremes of Himalayan weather. Once, he tumbled 900 metres in an avalanche. But he says this blizzard was worse than anything. The 80 to 100 knot winds, the temperature was probably uh, down to about minus 40 and visibility was now four or five metres. Oh my God. It's not easy life with the mountains in front of us. But on the other hand, you got to have a dream. And whether it's Mount Everest or getting out of Gary, Indiana, or Isaiah Thomas having a bad hip and wanted to play again and is now suiting up for 10 days to be a Laker again because of his hip surgery. They're all, all of those are mountains to climb. But we're going to learn what's really involved with making that dream come true from a real mountain climber, Tyler Andrews, coming up next here on the Weekend Warrior Show on 710 ESPN. Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook Know Your Your Knee Posts. One of the most complicated areas of the body. ACL, PCL, MCL, patella supplication. Really? Dr. Clapper translates the language of your knee on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Simply type in Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Wow! Your knee feels better already. Damn right. Like, follow, and feel better with the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Page. This is Keyshawn in the morning. My man, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show starts your Saturday morning. Join the doc from 7 to 9 a.m. But don't miss my show, Monday morning on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Why a four-year-old child could understand this report. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Run out and find me a four-year-old child. I can't make head or tail out of it. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710 home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me, no matter where you are, no matter how far. Don't worry, baby, just call my name, I'll be there in a hurry, you don't have to worry, cause baby, Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. There ain't no mountain high enough to keep Tyler Andrews from coming on this show. Tyler, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. 
Hey, hey, how's it going? I'm, I've been up for a while. I'm on Eastern time here. I already got a run in, so <laughs> Tyler Andrews, who the hell are you? Where'd you grow up? What's your father do for a living? Tell us all about you. <laughs> oh, man, how much time do we have? Uh, no, I actually grew up in Massachusetts, um, so East Coast and down at sea level, and which you know now I've been playing around in the mountains a lot. It's funny, I don't think I've actually ever been introduced as a mountain climber before i'm usually introduced as a runner because that's my background i i ran in high school and college and i've been running professionally starting out with half marathons marathons moving into ultra marathons and now uh running up and down mountains that's really uh what gets me out of bed every morning honestly (laughs) so we're gonna call it mountain running not mountain climbing there we go (laughs) I mean, mountain climbing, mountain running, yeah, it's uh, potato, potato, you know? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's all good. Now, what did your father do for a living? Where in the hell does it come in that the the <laughs> whole idea of the mountain, when did that day arrive that you decided you wanted to not just be flat, you want to go up? What what your mom and dad do? Tell us a little bit about how you grew up. Yeah, sure. Um, so my parents, uh, my, my mom's a psychologist. And my dad is uh, has worked in like technology his whole life, so he's kind of in the whole startup scene in the '90s, and has worked in in uh, in like information technology for for a very long time. And mm. um, so I, I was really raised in like a house of like science and like an intellectual household, and mm. I really fell in love with the outdoors. Uh, you know, in my teens, I, I fell in love with with running and pushing myself out just like in the woods around my house. And then mm. it wasn't until I came actually down here to South America where I am right now. I'm currently in Quito, Ecuador. Wow. And uh, I came down here for the first time in high school and really just completely fell head over heels for the mountains down here. I, uh, I was 18 years old and I climbed a 19,000 foot mountain for the first time, like walking on snow with crampons and stuff. And I was like, Oh, this is so cool. It's so badass. It's like the hardest thing I've ever done. And, <laughs> Uh, you know, since then, it's just kind of been a slippery slope of like more and more bigger mountains, uh, you know, kind of combining the my love of running and speed and, and pushing my body that way. And uh, along with my my love of the mountains, uh, you know, that's really where it's gone in the last few years. But, you know, it's funny if you look at me as a child, like I don't think anyone would have predicted this. I was a, not like a super athletic kid. I was kind of a nerdy intellectual kid. I was really into music and science and stuff and and then you know i i just kind of found this uh this little niche for myself in in long distance sports you know endurance sports through running and then eventually found my way here into into speed climbing and 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 mountain running yeah now how did you meet up with doug brennan who i have to thank for introducing us how did you meet (laughs) up with doug yeah sure so Doug, uh, Douglas Brandon is actually uh, an athlete that I coach. So that's part of how I, I support myself and make a living is I, I run a company called Chosky Endurance Collective. And we're a bunch of pro athletes from various disciplines and endurance sport that, that coach amateur athletes. So he reached out um, looking for a coach, uh, training for some races. And so he and I have been working together for about a year now. Mm. Um, and yes, yeah, so he's the one who, who introduced me to you here. And uh, yeah, that's why we're here talking. Wow. That's amazing. All right. Tell us a little bit about the Andes. Tell us a little bit about this mountain that's the largest in Amer- in the Americas outside of the Himalayas. I yeah. think it's the largest mountain on this continent. Tell us a little bit about sure. this mountain. Yeah, so the mountain you're talking about is called Aconcagua. It's the tallest mountain in the Americas. It is the tallest mountain outside of the Himalayas. It is 6,967 meters, which is almost 23,000 feet tall. 
um, and it sits right on the border of Argentina and Chile. And the reason we're talking about this is because that is my that's my big goal, I would say, for you know the next uh, well, really, it's been my big goal for a couple of years at this point. But it's it's gonna we're going for it next uh, month in January of 22. I have a, a small crew coming down with me uh, to Argentina, and we're gonna try and set the world record for the fastest ascent and descent of that mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, to give a little bit of context, I mean, uh, this is a mountain that. Uh, most people, I think it takes about two weeks from the trailhead, uh, to the summit and back. It's a round trip of about 45 miles. Um, and we're going to try and do it in about 11 hours. Uh, The current record is 11 hours and 52 minutes by a guy who happens to be a friend of mine here, uh, in Ecuador named Carl Egloff. Um, he broke that record. I think it was about four years ago. Um, so we'll be trying to that's that's the mark we're shooting for is that eleven fifty two round trip. Um, so yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be an exciting time and uh, I, I can't wait to get out there. Training has gone great, and I think it's definitely a mark within our grasp at this point. Are you gonna use oxygen? No, so usually people <laughs> use bottled oxygen over eight thousand meters. so those are those mountains are only in Central Asia and the Himalaya. And for speed climbing in general, I would say uh, almost, well, yeah, I think all the speed climbing records are, are done without oxygen, um, whether it's in, you know, the Andes or, or the Himalayas. But in general, people don't use bottled oxygen in the Andes. They're not quite high enough unless there's, you know, some kind of emergency. I want to take advantage of the fact that I'm talking to you right now. My <laughs> professor sure. in surgery, Ranawat, Dr. Ranawat, taught me as a surgeon that the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. So here I am on the radio with you. My ears really don't hear or need to learn what I'm hearing. I want to know what you're <laughs> hearing, what I, what I don't know. When you hear Edmund Hillary say this. Mm-hmm. One of the effects of, of high altitude is it's a little bit like having a dose of influenza almost being at, at high altitude. The, a lot of your energy and a lot of your drive tends to be sapped. And people feel uh, fit and able to cope with altitude at different times, even during uh, a single, you know, the few months of an expedition. So obviously you've got to get people who are well acclimatized, who have the drive and the enthusiasm at the right time in order to sort of throw them towards the summit and say, go to it. I understand fitness. You clearly are fit. What exactly (laughs) does Edmund Hillary mean by you have to have people with the right drive and enthusiasm what what is he saying that you hear that we need to understand yeah it's it's a really interesting quote and i mean i think his his comments about altitude are are really interesting because um it's true there's there's something about being up really high that just kind of drains energy and makes everyone really lethargic and i think that um you know i was listening to, to the clips you were playing before as well and and I think there's there's a very very fine line between, um, you know, having that safety factor where I, I know there was the the gentleman that that was on and said you know he turned around 300 meters below the summit of Everest, mm-hmm. which, you know, in in dangerous conditions is always the right call. It's always better to get down with your life than not. Um, but at the same time, I think altitude can really blur that line between like when is it just that I'm just too tired and my motivation is gone versus when is it a real safety issue? And I think that's something that, you know, I've been 
going up to these altitudes for almost 15 years at this point, and I have a really, really good sense for my own body mm-hmm. of of where that line lies, of where, <clears throat> okay, if I'm feeling nervous or tired or uncomfortable, is that because it's just getting hard and it's the altitude and it's the exertion, or is it, okay, my gut is telling me that something is, that this isn't the day, that something is wrong and this is the time to turn back. And I've, I've had both experiences. I've had lots of experiences where, you know, we always say like in Spanish, la montaña decide, which means like the mountain decides at the end of the day. And I've had lots of experience where I've gotten high up on a mountain and, you know, like that guy said, I've gotten within a hundred meters of the top of a mountain, even in a record time. And I've turned around because it's just like, okay, the conditions aren't right. This doesn't feel right. I want to get back down safely. It's more important than getting a record. Um, and then I've had other times where I've been on a mountain, I've been really nervous and I've been, you know, kind of looked inside myself and saw, okay, this, th- those nerves are coming from, somewhere that's that's not necessarily rational it's not about the conditions on the mountain it's just about me being tired or uncomfortable and i can push through that so Mm -hmm. i think for me that's really what it's all about is knowing knowing where that line is and and making sure that you're comfortable with with your ability to interpret um those sensations that you have up really high on the mountain because it's true like when you're when you're up really high like yeah your brain doesn't work as well like it's hard to make decisions so you really have to be able to trust in your own intuition amazing Meteorologists teach us that a hurricane should have a name. They don't just say it's a big Uh storm coming. They love calling it Katrina or whatever. If you talk Mm -hmm. to firemen, which I do a lot, taking care of them, they will tell you. They'll describe the fire, the blaze, as though she went left and the winds went right. It becomes a beast. It becomes this entity, do you find that the mountain becomes a beast, a person, a personality? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, that, that you, can, you can get to know a mountain in the same way that you can get to know a person or a pet or anything. And, and I think that's one of the things that I try to do. And it's one of the things that I've, um, you know, on the mountains that I've had a lot of success on a lot of the time, it's because I do spend quite a bit of time getting to know the mountain before. So you, you realize, okay, this is when storms usually roll in. This is when clouds usually roll in. This is what the, you know, when, when there's snow at this point, this is what it means. Um, you know, you can kind of read the glacier. You can read the, the sounds that the mountain makes, the way it moves, because glaciers are, are alive and are always moving. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think that that being able to, to really read your environment and read the mountain and get to know that mountain's personality. You know, there are, there are mountain, like mountains have nicknames too, in the same way that storms do, you know, like K2 is a, you know, like killer mountain or Nanga Parbat is a killer mountain, I think. And K2 is like death mountain. Like a lot of these mm-hmm. mountains have like really, really dark nicknames and stuff, right? Because people die on them. But like, um, so yeah, I actually haven't, I haven't been to Aconcagua yet, but, and I don't think it has as, as dark of a big thing because it's not as dangerous as a mountain, mm-hmm. but, um, for sure there, there is that same level of, of getting to know the route, getting to know the mountain, its personality, how it interacts with the climate, um, and how you interact with it as well. And making sure that you keep a, a healthy dose, dose of, of respect for the mountain as you're going up and down. Typically we think of getting to the top of the mountain as the the journey and its ending is on the top being a speed mm-hmm. demon runner of the mountains <laughs> i assume you're not really interested as much as spending a little time on the top i want you to listen to this soundbite and tell me what goes through your mind when you actually get to the top 
This is me mm -hmm. on the summit at two o'clock in the afternoon. So you really do know that you're standing on the top of the world? Oh, definitely, because it's, it's not much bigger than a, a dining room table or, or a bathtub itself. Um, so there's not much room actually to stand. It uh, drops off in all directions, off all sides. What's it like to get to the top of a really high mountain? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think that when you're doing uh, a speed record, it's a completely different experience. And I remember Carl Egloff, the, the guy I mentioned, who's, who's the current record holder on Aconcagua, he and I were talking about this with some people, I, I think it was a Thanksgiving party, and it's, you know, when when you go up the mountain for a first time, if you're an amateur climber or a hiker or whatever, and, you know, getting to the top is what it's all about. And you want to get up there and celebrate and take a bunch of pictures and enjoy the view. And for us as speed climbers, it's like, all right, we get up and we tag the summit and you split the watch and then you head right back down and that's it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I just did a record on Cotopaxi here in Ecuador, which is a 19,000 foot volcano. Uh, on Monday, and I was—I I literally spent less than five seconds on the summit. I just went up, <laughs> took a quick video saying, "Hey, here I am. It's this time," and then turned around and went back down. So, it's—it's it's a really different experience from when you're going up the first time. Uh, you know, maybe with your friends in an expedition, it takes forever. You know, like that guy in Everest, it's like those—that's getting to that summit takes so long. It's such a—you know—it's a month, month-long process for for those climbers. Um, but when you're going up on a speed climb, it's just like, you know, that's the halfway point. And really in terms of, uh, of, uh, of risk, it's, it's more like, you know, 10% point because most accidents do happen on the way down. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really like when I get to the summit of a mountain on a speed climb, the thing I'm thinking is, okay, now I really have to focus. On the way up, it's like I'm pushing physically. On the way down, I really need that mental focus because that's where you have the speed, the momentum, your really tired already and that's where you know you can slip you can fall you can twist your ankle you can um you know you can hurt yourself pretty badly on the way down so mm. for me that's that's really the point of of uh of shifting the the mental energy from pushing my body to okay i need to really keep my mind engaged for the next few hours until i get down safely because you know the work's not done yet tyler andrews can you hold on a second i want to pay some bills and i want to continue talking <laughs> to you is that all right Absolutely, yes, okay. sir. We're talking to the great Tyler Andrews, a mountain runner. That's basically what it is, climbing one of the biggest mountains in the world next month. Incredible. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Miss an interview or Doc's weekly story? Check it out on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Also, Doc's advice to callers on their aches and pains. Just type Weekend Warrior in the Facebook search bar and you'll see Doc's picture in the listings. And thanks for checking out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. And don't miss Mason in Ireland back Monday at 1 on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. I love this guy. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Robbie, come with me. We're going to fix the toilet. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. 
We're talking to the great Tyler Andrews calling in from Ecuador. That's a long, that's a lot of nickels to put in the phone. That's for sure. Tyler, tell us a little bit about your childhood. Apparently you had a rare childhood cancer and how did this shape you to become the person you are in mountain running in general? Yeah, uh, that's it's definitely been a big part uh, of my development as an adult. So this is in the mid nineties. I was in Boston and was diagnosed with a, a, a rare blood disease called aplastic anemia. Hmm. And, um, was, this was, I think, in first grade. So I was pretty young, and, and my memories of it are, are pretty pretty vague and dark. But um, it took me out of school for a year or so and definitely had a strong impact on my family and kind of our interactions. You know, a lot of that, you know, I obviously didn't really realize until later in life, but I definitely saw, I can see now as like an armchair psychologist and growing up in the house of a psychologist, like, oh, yeah, you know, okay, that's that's where maybe my, my mother was like really protective of me as a kid and a teen. And, you know, I naturally rebelled against that as a teen and kind of had my rebellious teenager phase where I had, you know, long hair and play guitar and just go and hang out with all my friends and not do anything. And then, um, you know, as, as I moved and matured, I think, into young adulthood, it became something that I actually thought about a lot in terms of, okay, like this was uh, something that was thrown at me. It was, uh, you know, not something that, that that everyone survives. And I felt like I was very much kind of given a chance to, to do something with my life. And, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've struggled with depression a little bit and, in my adult life. And I think that that's one of the things that's kind of helped me with that is thinking, okay, this is something that I've, I feel like I've been given a little bit of a second chance here. And, um, and yeah, so I think as I, as I think about my, my athletic pursuits and how that relates, it definitely, it motivates me because I, I do feel like I'm, I'm here for a reason. And I, I wanted to, to kind of find out what that is and, and what's the thing that I can do in the world that is, is unique and special. And, you know, I think, uh, there's there's a lot of different paths that we can follow in life and there's a lot of different paths that I could have chosen but this is this is the one that I've found that that makes me really happy and I think that I've I've found the most you know kind of unique success going forward um so so yeah in 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 retrospect I think it's something that it shaped my life it shaped my family's life it shaped my motivations and and it's also really shaped my desire to kind of have a strong community and and give back to those people um, who helped me get through that time, whether it's my, my immediate family or, or friends or just, you know, my community that I grew up with, things like that. Let's tell you, the whole idea that climbing a mountain is a metaphor for life. It represents dreams, mm-hmm. you know, surviving a childhood cancer like that. Your whole life, like all of our lives, is really climbing a mountain. And to be grateful, yeah. no matter what that mountain is, that we each have to deal with and get to the top is what gives you a happy life, is the ability to be grateful that you actually struggled and achieved a goal, uh, whether it's climbing a mountain or getting out of Gary, Indiana, or playing basketball again for Isaiah Thomas. How can the Weekend Warriors follow you, support you? Tell us what we can do for you before I let you go. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, So we are going to try and share this journey in a really – compelling and an open, powerful way. Luckily, there's actually pretty good uh, Wi-Fi and service on the mountains that we're going to be on in January. Um, so we're building a whole website out for that. Um, but I would say the most uh, 
the, the best way to follow right now is uh, is via Instagram. So I'm Tyler C. Andrews on Instagram. You can give me a follow there. Um, and our website, it's chosky.run. Um, that's the, that's our coaching website and there'll be our live tracking page on there. But for now, I'd say check out, uh, check out my Instagram page. That's where all the updates are going to be. Um, we'll be launching that tracking webpage around Christmas time. Um, as we head down to Argentina and Chile to really start the, the actual expedition, it'll, it'll last about one month. So we're going to get there around the 27th of December. And then we will be looking to do the record between probably January 15th and January 25th. We'll, we'll have a nice big weather window. Uh, we'll pick a date in there that looks good. We'll be praying for you, rooting for you. And it's really an enlightening story your whole life, but particularly what you're about to do running up this mountain. Oh. Thanks so much for making time to be with us, uh, Tyler, this morning. Thank we you really so much. all appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and, and following along. All right. God bless Doug for hooking us up together. I love it. All right. Have a good day today. God bless you. All right, Warriors, coming up next, I'll open the phones. The clinic will be open. The number is 877-710-ESPN. And I want to do a clap revision first about what I'm thinking about with Anthony Davis's knee. Clap revision. That's right. You'll get the clap revision right here. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. Clap Man. Weekend Warriors on Facebook. Holy slip disc. That's right, Robin. Hear listeners talk about their aches and pains. Holy hamstrings. Along with Doc's Clapper Vision. Breathe deeply. And advice to callers. On your toes, Robin. So like, follow, and enjoy. A wise decision. The Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Frankly, I can think of nothing more stimulating. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. My mother is quelling in heaven right now when you say that. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, Renaissance <laughs> Man, Surfing Sculptor, Smoother. <laughs> Gee, Lord have mercy. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. just hear Michael Jackson in this song. You know who I hear? I hear Tito Jackson. Because I have a new appreciation for the guy who actually brought the brothers together and brought Michael Jackson to the forefront. Discovering his talent and realizing that they're going to be special. Welcome back, everyone, to the Weekend Warrior Show. I do need to give you some clapper vision, but I want you to just hear again Tito Jackson talking about his little brother, Michael. What he represented in front of me was just phenomenal. I've never seen anything like it. It was like the way he sung and danced and moved. It wasn't just Michael, but Marlon was a great dancer, and, and so was uh, 
the other brothers, but Michael had that special talent of it all. He can sing, he can dance, he, he knew melody, he can take a song that you write and then sing it and just make it, knock it out the park. Mm -hmm. Add elements to it that you you never thought of it or would never would imagine. He knew, what we used to say, he knew how to bring a, a song home. He knew how to bring a song home. He could see those clouds in Indiana and imagine they were really mountains, mountains to climb. The hell awesome. yeah. All right, before we get into the clapper vision of Anthony Davis, the lines are lit up, so I better do some clinic work, some clapper vision. Let's go to Will and Ventura. You're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help, Will? Uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Clapper, I'm, a, I'm 74 years old, and about uh, uh, probably five years ago, what do you, I had what an did MRI you do for a living? Right shoulder. What, you do for a, what did you do for a living, Will? I was in L.A. City Fireman for 35 years. Oh, wow. I've been retired. I've been retired for 13 years. Do you ever make it your but, way to Good Time Donuts in uh, Ventura? Uh, no, but I make it to California Street throughout my whole life. I've probably been surfing for <laughs> probably 68 years. <laughs> well, after I surf but, tomorrow, uh, you will find me at Good Time Donuts having the best donuts and muffins in the world with Sue. You better tell her I sent you, but you need to go visit that place. Okay, so what street? What it's, street in the Vons, it's in the Vons supermarket uh, shopping center there by Seaward and, okay, and gotcha. uh, Harbor. Okay, I got gotcha. you. You better go well, there and tell her I was, sent you. Um, I had an MRI on my shoulder. Read it to me. And the, doctors, the doctor told me that he is recommending a full shoulder replacement. Yeah. And at the time, uh, that's that's what he said I needed. But mm -hmm. he said it wasn't uh, effective enough and to hold off. And it's been five years now. And I was wondering if you got a recommendation where, if you think it's it should be done, or uh, you got a surgeon that can do it. You're going to have to get in your car. I assume you're a fireman. You're an ex-fireman. So your car is a pickup yeah. truck. What color is your pickup truck? Uh, it's a white Dodge right. Diesel. <laughs> huh? Notice he did not, ladies and gentlemen, say, I don't drive a pickup truck. He actually told me the color of his pickup truck. God bless you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you need to get into that truck, and you're going to come down to Cedar sinai and I'm going to tell you what to do with your shoulder. Either that... You'll schlep your MRI to Good Time Donuts, and I'll make a house call in the Good Time Donut Shop. Okay, so in other words, I could come see you. You can come see me. I do not let on. anybody, do not let anybody give you cortisone shots, stem cells, no needles into your shoulder. Okay, Hell Will? No. Yeah, so, so my biggest problem now is I haven't surfed probably in... Uh, seven, eight months because I'll, I'll get you back in the ocean. I'll get, I can't, I can't pop up anymore. I'll get you back in the ocean, but you know, my, my office is going to be busy. So you call, tell Arnie, I said you won the prize. You won the prize for a shoulder and I will make time for you in the next week or two. How's that? Wow. Okay. Maybe, okay. Maybe just after the first of the year when everything slows down a That's little bit. That's right. In the meantime, come say hi at California street. I'll be in the ocean before the sun comes up tomorrow. 
Okay, I, I have, I've never seen you at uh, C Street, ever. Well, that's because it's pitch black <laughs> when I'm out there. Okay, Perfect. I, I got you. You go out in the morning light. I used to do that at Malibu on the way to work in the morning. <laughs> you need to write a book and make a movie about your life, Will. I can only imagine what you must have seen. Yeah. All right, young man. Oh, I look forward true. to meeting you in person, and thanks for checking in. Okay, thank you. All right, God bless you. All right, Warriors, let's do some clapper vision. Clapper vision. You saw that Minnesota Timberwolf, McDaniels, roll into Anthony Davis's knee, almost hyperextending it, and then he fell and held his knee. We've seen this way too much. Structurally, they examined it. They said it's okay, but he's having an MRI today. I need to teach you a little bit about what we need to be thinking about when you watch Anthony Davis's knee get hyperextended like that and grabbing the left knee. There are three things that give your knee stability. Two of the three things you really have no control over. One is the shape of the bone, how the femur, male-female, fits the thigh bone, the end of the thigh bone, fits into the top of the tibia, the shin bone, which makes up your knee joint. Actually how they are deep enough, seat enough, or too shallow, the actual geometry, all of us are built differently. Your right knee may even be different than your left knee. People who have a very deep groove, it's almost like the ball sits deeply in the socket. A golf ball not just sitting on a plate, but a golf ball inside a coffee cup. How deep is the cup? How deep is that place for the femur and the tibia, the shape of the bone? That's the first thing, and you have no control over that. Here's the second thing that gives you stability in your knee that you have no control over. The cable, the ligament, that keeps it in place. You got no control over the ACL, the PCL, the medial collateral ligament, the lateral collateral ligament, the ligaments... They allow your knee to straighten and bend, but also at the same time be stable. They just sit there giving you support, bolted into the bone. <clears throat> but the third thing is where all of this lies, where it makes a difference who the athletic trainer is for the Lakers, for the Golden State Warriors, for any professional team, for the L.A. Rams, the value is not so much, in my opinion, who the doctor is, to be honest. And I'm an orthopedic surgeon telling you that. The value is in the training staff. Because you need to do this third thing that gives you stability is strength. And nobody knows it better than LeBron James. He is a gym rat, a workout fiend, because he understands that if he keeps the tone of his quad, his hamstring, and his calf muscle as maximally toned, then when you have something happen, someone rolls into you and your body can fire those strong muscles, that is the third feature of what gives your knee stability. So yeah, Anthony Davis will have an MRI today and we will be looking for those three areas. What happened to his muscle and tendon? What happened to his ligament? And what happened to the bone? Does he have a bone bruise? Did he sprain, strain, or tear a ligament? And what did he do to the muscle? An x-ray won't tell you that. 
but an MRI will. And we look for shades of gray in this black and white study. You would think in 2021 we have color pictures of a colored anatomy. You know, you have blood vessels that are red and blue. Cartilage is white. And yet we still have to deal with a black and white film. But the subtleties, what makes radiologists worth their weight in gold. And I don't just rely on the radiologist. I still need to read it with my own eyes. Are the shades of gray in the MRI. That's the subtle findings that tells us a tear versus a strain. A bruise versus a fracture in the bone. Those are the subtle things. And that's what will be looked at today with his MRI. Let's talk about food. I talked about climbing mountains today and climbing mountains and food. Where in Los Angeles is my favorite when I think of mountains? Look around. Look at those mountains in L.A. It's cold and it's been raining. There's snow on top of those mountains. When I see them, my mouth waters. Because to me, those are chocolate coconut cupcakes. Those trees are that coconut fraying on top. There is nothing better than a chocolate coconut cupcake. The hell yeah. And the best chocolate cupcake, coconut cupcake in L.A. is at Jones on 3rd in West L.A. You better get there soon because they'll run out. And let me give you the Clapper Vision trick to how to eat a cupcake. What do you mean? How can there be a trick, Dr. Clapper, in eating a cupcake? You just bite into it, peel the paper away. Nope. This is the way Dr. Clapper eats a cupcake. Yeah, you can peel the paper away, but then I want you to do one extra step. I need you to take your left hand, hold the cupcake, and with your right hand, grab the side of the cupcake. Twist it and disconnect the top of the cupcake from the bottom. Amputate it. And now turn with your right hand the top of the cupcake upside down. So now the icing is between the two cakey parts of the cupcake. You now have a cupcake sandwich. Bite into that. It's the best cupcake you've ever had in your life. Yes! Oh, yes! Wow! (laughs) I want to wish you all happy holidays. We'll take a break. We're going to do some best ofs. And in the first of the year, we'll be back bigger, better than ever. My first guest is going to be a man who has bowled over 100 300 games. You know how hard it is? How exciting it is to have a 300 game? You're lucky if you meet someone who's ever done that. Well, we're going to talk to a guy who's figured out how to bowl a perfect game over 100 times. And he showed me a video of how he does it. He throws the bowling ball in a completely different way than I've ever seen before. The material, they're going back to polyurethane balls. He's going to teach us about the lanes, but you know what I know. There's more to bowling than throwing a ball, and that's what I'm looking forward to understanding. Until then, I'll see you on the radio. And thanks for listening to the Weekend Warriors Show in 2021. See you in 2022 on the radio.
Mexican Warriors on Facebook. Didn't you get the memo? Quickly hear Clapper's crazy kitchen stories. Easily find different callers, aches and pain issues. Right, I get it. Search Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Who are you again? Voila! Like, follow, and enjoy the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. <laughs>